We have uh, all questioned, I know for sure I have, at one time or another, you know, does God really love me? You know, I look at my disappointments, and I'm sure each of you have, have experienced disappointments in life, and, and I compare myself to, to, to others, and I see what they have, and I ask God, if you are so loving, why don't I have that? We look at turmoil in our family relationships, or we see no family relationship at all to fret over, and we question God, why? Why don't I have that? We look at our lack of financial resources, and we see others that we perceive have so much, and we ask God again, why? We have conflicts at work, and we sense my job is going down the the, the, the tubes, and we see others whose jobs appear to be more like a, a vacation than the drudgery of, of what I have to go through. And we ask God, you know, are you there? Do you love me? Why is this happening to me? We have lost loved ones in the prime of their lives, and again, we ask God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did this have to happen to me? Where is the love for me? that I see mentioned throughout Scripture. For many of us, these feelings are just fleeting and they come upon us, but we're able to apply the the truth of Scripture to realize that my feelings are not accurate and to apply a a correct focus to my life. Others of us who are Christians, this thought of God's lack of, of love for me is more the norm than the exception. And my message this morning is, is for you and for those of you here this morning that, that don't have a personal relationship with Christ. No other topic in the Bible can show us how much God loves us and shows the non-believer the true heart of God. And if we approach this with an open heart, we can experience the draw of God to him. The problem why there is such a misunderstanding of God's love for us is we are looking at the wrong things in the wrong places, and we gauge his love for us by these things. We are looking at our experiences, our circumstances, to inform us of how much God loves us. This is not where we are supposed to look. Now, God does work in our, in our circumstances to, to do such things as to, to discipline us. Scripture says that God disciplines those he loves. And if you are a Christian and you're engaging in inappropriate behavior, uh, God's word says that he will discipline you, which usually comes through our, our circumstances. God is also at work at maturing his children, teaching them, molding them to become the men and women he wants us to become, and often that process is not the most pleasant at times. And finally, stuff just happens. We live in a fallen world when sin entered into it. It is ruled by evil forces. Bad things happen in different ways and intensity to some over others. Countless number of books are are written on that topic, I don't have the time to go over it here this morning, but I'd be happy to, to, to recommend some. I know our, our, our pastor has many of those as well. The topic that I'm referring to is the path that took Christ to the cross and his crucifixion. 
This, this process, this trip that Christ took is a divinely given picture of God's love to each man and woman who has walked the face of the earth. To fully realize and appreciate this, we must embrace the horror of it, realize the brutality of his shed blood and broken body, and finally we must strive to understand why he did this in order to fully realize his love for us and the overwhelming blessing for those of us who do. With God's power, that is my prayer for me and for each of us this morning, that in the next 30 or so minutes from now, each of us can, can say no matter the injustices, the grief, the brutalities endured in our lives, we can all say, this is how I am loved. The path that we will, we will look at begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus leads his uh, disciples up to the Mount of Olives and into the Garden to pray one last time before his final betrayal. Let's look at Luke uh, uh, 22. Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 42. Starting at verse 42 of Luke chapter 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. We'll come back to this later, but uh, I just, just make a note of that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. As Jesus, the God-man, begins the process of ending on the cross, my hope is to enhance the reality of this terrible and real event. I've tried to balance the, the factual horror of Christ's physical suffering, but not wanting to drag us into some morbid fascination with it. Taken into custody, Christ was first struck in the presence of Caiaphas, the high priest. And then he was subjected to a series of blows as the temple guards blindfolded him. The guards taunted him, spinning on him as he went by, striking him in the face. Next, he was scourged under Pilate. Scourging had the nickname as the halfway death. It meant that the the soldiers stripped him naked, they tied him down, and used the deadly flagellum whip to rip uh, his flesh from his bone. 
And then after the Roman soldiers continued the mockery, they crowned him with a, with a crown of thorns made up of about an inch to inch and a half uh, length in thorns. And they, you know, forced that on his skull. And then he beat him on the face and head with a mock scepter until he was unrecognizable. And then after he was let out to begin the walk to the place of his crucifixion, the crossbeam of his cross was strapped to his torn shoulders. He was led to the, by the longest route possible to allow as many as wanted to see and mock this supposed king of the Jews. And when he finally reached the place of his execution, they offered him wine mixed with mirth, but he did not take it. He did not, he did not take the drink that would relieve the pain, lessen the suffering, and calm the anxiety for the task that lay before him for one reason. He needed to maintain clarity of mind to the end, bearing the full weight of his suffering to complete his task. Arriving at the place of his crucifixion, the cross piece was dropped onto the ground and Jesus was thrown on top of it. Nails were driven through his hands, attaching him to it. That piece was raised up by the, shoulders, by the soldiers with Jesus dangling from it and that was connected to the upright post. Then Jesus' feet were tied to that post by a single nail going through both of his feet. At this point begins the repeated genuflections as he struggled upward, putting his weight on his nailed feet for breath and folded downward with his weight hanging from his nail-pierced hands in exhaustion, only to do it again and again to keep from suffocating. Thus, this began what the scriptures refer to as the third hour. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And this continues until the sixth hour or till noon. Now remember I said that we would return back to the Garden of Gethsemane and then specifically um, verse 42 of Luke 22. Let's go back there. Of Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup that's mentioned here obviously represents something. Is it the, the physical suffering from which he is trying to avoid? The torture of the scourging or the cross, together perhaps with the mental anguish of betrayal, denial and desertion of his friends, the mockery and the abuse of his enemies. I believe that for the longest time, that that's what the cup was. But as searching through scriptures, I realized that scripture didn't support this. In fact, scripture tells us that the cup referred to here is God's wrath poured out upon men. Let's look at a couple passages that... that highlight this for us. Uh, First one is Psalms 75, verse 8. 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Another passage at the end of our Bible, Revelation 14, 10. 
the context of 1410 is, is, um, the, is speaking to those who have worshipped the beast. Um, he also, Revelation 14.10, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So what Jesus has experienced so far, as grievous as they are, is not God's wrath. And if it's anyone's wrath, it's man's wrath against Jesus. So what has Jesus done? Why is he to experience the wrath of God? Let's move on to see if we can determine what it is that Jesus in the garden was dreading so much to the point of, of, of near death. Let's go back to our timeline where Jesus now has been nailed to the cross. He's been there for three hours from the the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, to the sixth hour. Scripture refers to something that happened at the sixth hour. Turn to Mark fifteen thirty three. Mark fifteen thirty three. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness fell over the earth. The Greek tense of the word indicates that it came suddenly, and all four of the Gospels refer to it as a supernatural wonder. Also during this time, contrary to the mocking and the yelling at Jesus, silence fell all all over the, the area. The Gospels record no words from Jesus or his antagonist in the eerie midday gloom. So why the darkness? The darkness that it talks about here in Mark is the same darkness that came in Exodus when God sent the plague on the the Egyptians. Moses was there trying to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, and Pharaoh kept saying no. And and Moses kept sending through God's power one plague after another. And the final plague that, that Moses said would happen is that the firstborn of every family, both Egyptian and Israelite, would be killed. And then Moses told the Israelites to keep the angel from death to come over into their family. They needed to take the blood of an innocent lamb and paint it over their doorposts, and that would preclude the angel of death from visiting their household. And when that angel of death came over, there was darkness all around. It refers to the same event. So now before the death of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, there again was darkness. God's judgment, his wrath was being poured out in midday night. So what had Christ done? Why was this occurring to him? What was God trying to accomplish here? Wasn't the physical pain, the desertion, the humiliation enough for him? Why this? What more was needed? The following verses will give us the answer to what is happening and why. Let's turn to Isaiah 53, verse 3 through 6. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He, this referring is a prophecy regarding the Messiah, which is Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Transgression, another word for sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself, again speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Living Bible, which I normally don't use, but uh, gives a great... um, uh, um, uh, reading on this on this verse. verse. I'll, I'll read that to you. The Living Bible version of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's good news into us. That's a nice summary for um, a number of sermons on Romans that our Pastor Brad has been going through. So wave after wave of the world's sins was poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed as all the lies of civilization, the murders of a thousand killing fields, the whorings of the world's armies, the noxious brews of our hatreds, our jealousies, our pride were poured onto his purity. Finally, he became a curse, Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus was now experiencing that which he saw so clearly in the garden. The physical agony of going to and being on the cross was nothing in comparison to paying the price for the sin which caused such agony, my sin and your sins, the wrath of God that we, not he, not Jesus, that we so rightfully deserve was poured out onto Jesus Christ. Something else just as dreadful has now come upon Jesus. He who had not known a second of separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit is alone. Then came the end of of the third hour, and the silence is shattered where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry was expressing his unfathomable pain at his real abandonment, and and with that, the darkness began to lift. Jesus had now emptied the cup. He had consumed all of the wrath that each of us had so rightfully deserved. Preceding the end of his life, we hear 
two final statements recorded in, throughout the Gospels. First of all, he declares, it is finished, followed by, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Two observations must be made from which we have covered this morning. First, Jesus did not die an ordinary death by crucifixion. Normally, a victim of this type of death died through a progressive loss of a strength. A strength. Uh, they fell unconscious and died feebly. Jesus was conscious, conscious to the, his very last breath. Jesus' life was not taken from him, but he gave his life for us. From the very beginning in the garden, Jesus was in control. Look back at each of the verses that we've covered Jesus was in control. He either freely went or freely allowed the authorities and the mob to do what they did. Jesus gave his life. It was not taken. He was not forced to do this. He did it freely. Why? Why did he do it? He did it for one and one only reason. He did it because of how much he loves me and how much he loves you. Second, the word finished when Jesus said it is finished means that he finished his mission. Not that he was finished by either the mobs, his enemies of the evil forces at work, desiring to destroy him. Finished is as in the perfect tense, which means it has been and it forever will be finished. As the waking sun shone brighter on his still hanging head, the greatest work ever performed has now been finished. Jesus had gone lower than any human had ever gone as your sins and mine were poured over his wincing soul. He suffered a great isolation from the Father than any living soul has ever undergone, and he conquered. Thus he could shout in victory, it is finished, and he confidently yielded his spirit to the Father. You and I, we cannot top that. Salvation comes to us from his finished work on the cross. If any of us has the audacity to think or suppose that we can add anything to his work, or some think they don't have to add, they can just do it all themselves and, and not even include his work and earn their salvation we heap a terrible insult onto him and to his work. Salvation can only come by trusting in his finished work and nothing else. Are you trusting in him alone? I passed over one encounter that Christ had, and what, what I enjoy when I, when I read through the Gospels, you know, no matter the situation, the, the multitude of people, it, it seems like time after time, even though he's dealing with huge masses of people, there's always, you know, um, a peasant woman that comes up or a blind man that comes to him. And he always seems to be able to take the time away from that, these momentous events, and minister to the individual. This happened as well when Jesus was on the cross. He was not the only one there on that hill being crucified. 
there were two other men that were there with him, one on his right and one on his left. They were convicted criminals. And Luke 23 um, gives us that account of that. Luke 23, starting in verse 39 through 43. Luke 23. One of the criminals who were, were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here's Jesus hanging on the the cross, barely able to breathe, enduring the wrath of God for all of our sins. And he is still able to minister to this individual. And he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, there's no magic words to coming to Christ, to being saved, to being given the assurance of going to be with him in paradise. It's, it's the words of our heart that God hears and God responds to. The stories of these two men describe everyone in this room this morning as well as the entire world, because we are them in two very unique ways. Like these two men, each of us is a sinner. We have fallen short. And just like them, where they differ, everyone in this room in the entire world differs into two different groups as well. The one man who was mocking Christ went to his death still holding on to his sins. And by the way, the consequences of those sins. The other man whose expression of faith, remember me in paradise because of his simple expression of faith, has transferred his sins from himself onto Christ through those simple words. This situation demands me to ask a very simple question but a question that I am positive will be the most important question with the greatest implications you will ever be asked. It's more important than any career decision, more important than any marital or family decision you may make, and clearly more important than any business decision, no matter how many millions of dollars it involves. This question is the most important question because its answer has eternal consequences. Just like the two robbers, one kept his sins and the other transferred his sins to Jesus. Where are your sins this morning? Where are your sins this morning? That's a paramount question that all of us need to answer. And if you choose to delay it, if you choose to not answer it, it's the same as saying, no, I want to hold on to my sins. I I don't count as worthy the work that Christ did on the cross for me. So I'm going to pray for each one of us this morning, particularly for anyone who has not transferred their sins over to Christ. Then we're going to uh, close with a a, a song, and it's a song that I want, I desire for you to Meditate on it. You can sing along with it however you feel best. 
but you know, to make that the words of that song a tribute to your life. And finally, if you've made any kind of decision here tonight, today, this morning, say something to somebody, someone who's encouraged you to come, some one of the leaders, even to myself. You know, I would love to hear from you. It's important that you share any decision you make. Let me pray for us. Father God, um, I am so thankful that that you love us you love us to the point that you went through hell and back for us and even though at times it feels like you don't or you're not there you are always there because your word says you are and just like you ministered to that man on the cross you're so desirous to minister to each one of us And Father, I pray for the person who has not asked Christ to take his sins and put them on to you. I pray that you would help them to realize how much you love us, how much you desire for for each one of us to do that. And so that we can have peace, we can have freedom, and most importantly, we can have a personal relationship with you. Father, I just pray, I encourage each of us to have done this. In Christ's name, amen.